Hello, 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 and welcome to Amber. And to start it off, let's bring Russell in. Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There is so much more to Amber Live than just the amazing interviews that drag queen Amber LeMay does each week. We have hundreds of interviews and comedy sketches online already, and you can watch them all on YouTube. But in the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. He's an American playwright, actor, director, novelist, drag legend, cabaret entertainer, and Tony Award winner. He's been a major voice in theater, movies, and television for the past 45 years. It's my pleasure to talk to Mr. Charles Bush. Charles, come on in. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello. It's, it is such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. I have so many questions. Well, I do have to give you one one correction, though, that I, I'm a, I was a Tony nominee, but I, I, didn't, I didn't win. Oh, you did. Well, you should have. <laughs> oh, I was robbed. <laughs> who, won, who won that year? Oh, some little play nobody ever heard of called Proof. <laughs> and the other, oh, oh, and the and the other nominees were um, oh these people I've I've never heard of August Wilson and Tom Stepard. Oh. oh wow, wow! And you didn't beat them. <laughs> I don't know why, you know. But, but, the, but the actually the kind of the wonderful thing is that I I was so overwhelmed that I was nominated, and I never ever thought that was going to be. And so I was able, and I knew I wouldn't win. Uh, so I went into this whole circus of the Tonys with the kind of a wonderful, you know, kind of relaxation of just being able to enjoy the outrageousness of the experience and not be all nervous. However, that said, the, those last five seconds while they're, you know, <laughs> saying the nominate, nominees, they, what, what if they all cancel it <laughs> out? And, and the thing is, what I, don't, what I do not understand when I watch these award shows is when people win you know, an Oscar or a Tony or, or Emmy and they, oh, they get up there and like, oh my God, I, I, I don't even I have no idea what to say. I mean, I just fight you, you know, you, and all these things, there's like a month, a month between the nomination announcement and the awards. And there's not one moment that you stood in front of the bathroom mirror and, and started, you know, just going over your thoughts. Because I mean, I've been planning acceptance speeches since I was nine years old. <laughs> Haven't you? But I have. I, I have noticed that, like if it's a, for the Oscars, that if they're a, if they have a theater background, they are more prepared or more, I should say, more composed. A, than, a bit more, um, a bit more, yeah. 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 <laughs> but I never get that. I, I, mean, I don't have an idea what to say. Really? <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't win, but I had a don't can't I can't say that I didn't you know pose in front of the mirror and. Oh, award! <laughs> what this means to me, and I like that. <laughs> oh, of course. All right, you've done so much over the past half century. I, I mean, obviously, you started at a very young age. <laughs> what, what are your first memories of being creative or seeing something and thinking, "I like that. I, I want to do that." Well, that's, that's an interesting way of, of asking. Um, hmm. Um, I feel like I, I always had a creative imagination. You know, I was just one of those little gay children who, um, you know, I was lucky that I basically grew up in New York. I, I, um, 
uh, and you know, I, I had a wonderful aunt, rather like Auntie Maine, my Aunt Lillian, who um, took me under her wing and actually eventually, very much like Auntie Maine, adopted me. I went to live with her when I was uh, 14. But even before that, I spent so much time with her. And I was just one of those kids that could find the enchantment in, in anything. If, if, if Aunt Lillian took me to go uh, fabric shopping because she was going to make new drapes, and at you know seven years old, I saw a basket <laughs> of, of fabric remnants, and I'd pick up the piece of glittery stretch fabric, and I could spend an hour just fascinated by, oh, there's... One side is one side is shiny, the other side is matte. You know, I just I was like, you know, I was part of that kind of kid. There's many of them, and um, <laughs> fortunately for me, uh, I was so encouraged. You know, a lot of kids who have that great imagination grew up in families or situations where they're they're stifled and they're not encouraged. And I I was really lucky that everything I did was was a work of genius. And so it gave me, you know, even though the outside world might have thought I was just, you know, an oddball. And uh, remember I, the first thing you you wrote or performed? Well, I, I gather that I don't really remember, but I, I people tell me that they I show up on Facebook, you know, who who knew who were kids in my neighborhood when I was very very little and and seemed to remember all sorts of plays that we were doing in the backyard that I that I was bossing people around. I, I don't remember that at all. Is that you? Yes. <laughs> I thought you looked familiar. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but I wrote my first I, I'd say full length play when I was eleven. And uh, it was kind of a nobody seemed to to notice that it was a complete mashup between the heiress and Barrett's of Wimpole Street. I, you know, I'd just grown up watching these movies on TV, and uh, so I just was entranced by it. Uh, did your aunt take you to any Broadway shows? Yes, yes. I started going to um, the theater when I was, I guess, uh, eight. And the first Broadway show I saw was a, a musical called Tavarich, starring Vivian Lee. And I guess I was, so that was 63, so I would have been eight to nine. And uh, I'd already seen Gone with the Wind and was just obsessed with Vivian Lee. So I, 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 I remember quite vividly, you know, just, well, you know, it was such an important thing, the first Broadway show you see and, and, and Vivian Lee. And, was it a musical? Yeah, it was a musical, her, her one musical. Yeah. Huh, I, I don't recall that show. Yeah, well, was, was a huge hit. She won the Tony for it. What? Oh, she did win. Yeah. Okay. She won. Yeah. I'm sure made a lovely speech. <laughs> what, what, what other shows did you see as a kid? Well, we, we tended to see uh, a lot of flops and not the big hits because uh, <laughs> my aunt belonged to uh, something called the Macy's Theater Club where you would uh, get, before the C Broadway season would start, they would give you a list of all the shows that are opening, and then you would buy your tickets in advance. And you had to kind of have ESP to figure out what you know is going to be the hit. And we had terrible ESP because we we didn't see you know, <laughs> Hello Dolly or Fiddler on the Roof. We saw all these sort of famous flop musicals that are now rather legendary, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for the wrong reasons. But then later, since some of them, we would see the. Later, we we get kind of half price tickets. You know, they'd come two furs if you could. You know, they would give you uh, two tickets with price of one for some of the big hits when they were not such big hits anymore. 
So we did see some of the big shows, but we saw a lot of flops. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, think I, 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 in a way, uh, it didn't matter to, to me as a little kid. I wasn't looking at it with that kind of um, critical uh, faculty. I, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that I didn't become a set designer because my it would stuck with me about some of the shows were the visuals. You know, there was a musical that was not successful called Baker Street that was based on Sherlock Holmes. And I just remember just there was some incredible big musical number where they were chasing across the roofs of London and set just kept moving and changing. And, you know, I saw that just, whoa, you know, or I'll remember the uh, another show, the revolving turntable and how the sets kept moving so quickly and, yeah, stuff like yeah, and color. Um, the move for you know, I um, I was taken to see rather adult movies at a very young age, and um, uh, and often in Times Square. Yes, yeah, so, well, Ed <laughs> liked to go see the uh, uh, second run movies. That would when a movie would not be playing at the at the big fancy theater, they'd go to um, they'd play at one of the theaters on Forty Second Street, which was already a little you know dicey, but we would see things there. Um, but I remember, like the movie of Gypsy, in nineteen sixty-two, just the the colors of that movie, the you know the um, the reds and the then the the incredible blue of Natalie Wood's gown, and uh, just those things just stuck. Or Gone with the Wind, just you know Bill Watling's you know boudoir, and just the the colors, just uh, and so in a way that's I think my apartment is looks like it's out of Gigi. You know, it's just I like the reds and the you know intense color. Yes, you talk about your apartment. Now there's a a video out there. Please, my audience, please Google Charles Bush apartment. And there's a it's tour. Actually, of, it's called a four minute tour. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, apartment, it's called the, the site is called apartmenttherapy.com. Apartment, but it's a beautiful apartment. Wait, the apartment. <laughs> it's it's beautiful. So mm -hmm. you move to um. You, well, you started living in New York permanently at 14. No, no. Uh, what high school did you go to when you were there? Oh, um, well, when I – see, I was flunking out of grade school. I, I went through a bad period, and, you know, because, you know, my mother died when I was seven, and, and I um, just kind of was drifting along in a way, almost being raised by myself for a number of years with my sister. And um, uh, and so it got to a point where I, I really was in a very bad – shape you know and couldn't really focus and so uh, i was going to be left back and that was when my aunt who was my mother's older sister um stepped in and she took me to live with her ostensibly just for the summer uh to so i could go to summer school and if i passed those exams then i could continue with my class and i was going to school in in, in westchester in a suburb of new york city called hartsdale and then, but Aunt Lillian wanted to keep me in New York. And then I got to live with my aunt full time in New York City where she could, you know, really give me a hard time and try, try to, you know, instill in me just the basic skills of, of studying, of concentration. I never really quite got it. You know, I, I was able just to get better, but, you know, I never really succeeded. But enough, to, I got into college. That was the goal. Uh, yeah. That was so how goal. you you went to Northwestern University? Yeah. Uh, how how and why did you get there? I don't. I, we wondered. 
<laughs> when I got accepted in, my, my aunt was like, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> I, I don't know, really, um, because I was a, you know, a very prestigious school. But I, it was hard for me when I got to Northwestern, being kind of newly sexualized gay, to throw myself into these acting classes where you had to use yourself, but in, in playing these straight roles. You know, there were no, at that time, you know, there was no Torch Song Trilogy or Angels in America or any of these roles today over the past 30 years, you know, that um, are for androgynous young men. The, the important thing for me was actually, it was that I met some really interesting people, students, and uh, who later became real colleagues of mine, particularly one person in particular, um, Ken Elliott, who uh, I was friendly with at Northwestern, but then after we graduated, we stayed in touch. And he came to New York, we ended up becoming roommates. And he became my the director, producer of, of all of my early plays. Then we started a theater company together. So, so the great thing about Northwestern was that I made the, uh, that I met Ken, basically, is, is what, it, what it is. That was worth the four years. But I was never, I was almost never cast in a play. I, I just was too, um, I was too gay. And I, and I, and I, and what was, I must say, I pat myself on the back was that I had enough sense to see that, uh, okay, I'm not being cast in any of these plays, but I still feel like I have something in me that's special to offer. And, and uh, I didn't let it destroy me. You know, I think other and somebody else, somebody else might have just thought, well, you know, that's it for me. I, I don't fit in, so I just will give up. And that was never, never occurred to me in a million years. It, it, it just I thought, oh, I've, they don't see it, but I, I think I have something there that's. And, and then fortunately, I, at that time. When I would go back home to New York, I became exposed to more um, downtown experimental theater, and particularly uh, the work of this extraordinary figure in, in off-Broadway history, Charles Ludlam. And yes, yes. I want to talk more about your early days in New York as a young adult, and we'll get to that right after this break. Great. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast, you can use our Venmo at RJD Pro, or you can visit us at AmberLive.tv and look for the Support Amber Live button. And now, back to this incredible interview. And now, part two of our interview with Charles Bush. All right. I'll continue my interview with Charles Bush. We talked about his early days growing up in New York City and the experiences at Northwest University. Now we're going to find out what happened when he returned to the Big Apple. Charles, come back in. So, Charles, you were saying that um, you were being exposed to some of the different yeah. types of theater that was happening in New York at the late mm -hmm. 60s, early 70s. Tell me about that. Well, there really was a kind of a golden age of the... Um, I guess you call it the avant-garde, and there were all these these wonderful figures of uh, oh, Richard Foreman and uh, and Judith Molina and um, 
Tom O'Horgan, and uh, and then for me, really was um, Charles Ludlam, who was a, a playwright, actor, director, who had his own theater company called the Ridiculous Theatrical Company, and he really is a very influential figure to a lot of people. Um, Bette Midler, um, I don't know, just all sorts of people could have acknowledged that. Um, and when I saw him him perform in one of his plays. Uh, it just opened up a whole world to me of 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 what I what I thought. Oh, you know, the the very things that seemed to make me um, unemployable were celebrated in his aesthetic. And he had he had um, uh, male actors playing female characters, uh, and and he himself. Play, I mean, it's funny that he's cons- people write about him as being like this great drag star when. Out of thirty-six plays, I think only four of the roles were female. But you know that, so that he's kind of typed. Um, but yeah, he he was just phenomenal performer, and so and great charisma. So when I I saw him and his company, it, it gave me a, a inspiration to to really um, uh, write to be more serious about my writing. And I'd always had I'd always um, been writing plays since I was a little kid, but I somehow, I guess my my love of performing was so overwhelming that I I didn't really think about being a writer. But when I I, I would imagine that what after seeing Ludlum creating roles for himself, that I thought, well, that's what I should do. That maybe that the only way I can be an actor is to uh, create the part for my very special abilities. Did you contact him? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I had seen him a number of, a number of his plays. And then um, well, I guess maybe it was, what year? It, it might've been um, my senior year at college, I guess, perhaps. And yes, it was. Um, he was touring and his company, they came to, to play the University of Chicago which you know wasn't that far from Northwestern, and so my best friend Ed and I, uh, we got there. And they did. They were in repertory. They did, I think, a weekend, and three plays, and um, uh, you know, I think it was two plays, and then they did a workshop, and so we we attended both plays, and then the workshop, and we got to meet Charles and members of his company, and um, so that sort of established a little bit of something there, and then. Uh, then after I came back, moved back to New York a few years later, I kind of stalked him basically just to get him to. I I, I didn't. I mean, if I didn't want to work with him, I, and I I didn't even really want to be friends with him. I I just I just wanted him to think I was talented. I, I it's, it was odd. I didn't know really what I, I didn't really want anything from him. You know, I just wanted him to think that I was worthy. Somehow, you know, so I was, you know, I, I, I guess it's I'm jumping ahead a bit, but you know, I'd stay after I graduated from Northwestern. I stayed in Chicago two more years, trying to figure out how I was going to figure out you know, how I was going to get a career going, since it was not going to be something, you know, go to an audition or get an agent, go to an audition, and that was not going to be the route. So I had to really figure it out and. Um, started putting doing putting on plays in Chicago 
with my friends. Um, but then I went at a certain point after two years of that, I thought, I, I think I'm ready to go back home to New York City. And I knew no one. The only that seemed to me that the best route would be to be a solo performer. Uh, so I'd, I'd been work at, working on a, a play for this, for an ensemble in Chicago, but I took the play, it was called Hollywood Confidential, and I turned it into a solo play. I thought, well, I'll play all the, all the parts, male and female. Now it'll be easier to to get done than you know a whole play with a cast and a set and all that. So that's so how I became a solo performer just out of that. That was the initial plan. And I did that for about eight years. And and I um fairly soon after coming back to New York with this Hollywood confidential solo piece, uh I was able to uh uh, contact Charles Ludlam, and he he saw me perform it in a, a little cabaret room, and he was very generous and let me uh, do it as late shows uh, after his performances on weekends. At his he had his own theater at this point in 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 Greenwich Village, and and I you know nobody knew who I was, so nobody nobody came to see it, you know. But it was it was just a nice thing that I could be there for, well, you know, a few weekends and the few people saw me. And I think it was the first time that I was reviewed or mentioned in the uh, uh, Advocate, which was kind of big back then, the magazine. So so it was just good. You know, I mean, it was not a success, but it was just, it was a way to start. And I was very grateful to uh, Charles Ludlam for giving me that opportunity. And then my my big, really big break, though, that changed my whole life, it was it was years later. Um, you know, I had about a ten year apprenticeship, uh, but when we started our theater company, Ken Elliott and I started our theater company in New York, Theater in Limbo, and we did this play, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, originally just for one weekend in this bar in the East Village, but it kind of took off, and then we produced it ourselves off Broadway at at the Provincetown Playhouse in in Greenwich Village. And that opening night, when the New York Times review came out, and it was an incredible rave review, and I'd never been reviewed in New York. Uh, And that just really overnight changed my my entire life. um, The day before, I was still working as an office temp during the day, and and from that moment on, I could earn my living in in show business, and everything, wow. everything, you know, great that's happened to me. It really can be traced back to that um, that night. Yeah, I, that I, show I, go more glamorous every nights since, but nothing can be better. You know, the where I came from and the day before, and where I was the next day, it can never be as as powerful as as that. Tell me the project, trajectory of that show. What it played at your theater for a while, and then what happened to it? Well, uh, it it really was just this again, a, a really a miracle. You know, we had, um, you know, I had been doing this, you know, my solo performances and booking myself around the country at different theaters. You know, but it was it, it could get a little grim, you know. But I I played, you know, I was I performed frequently in San Francisco and. Um, well, these are different different places, 
but I, it wasn't um, adding up to anything. You know, I, I still couldn't earn a living ultimately. And um, I, since I, I draw well, I, my main source of income was as a quick sketch portrait artist, you know, on the sidewalk and working at art fairs and on the boardwalk and seaside resorts like Wildwood, New Jersey. And, you know, it's a, it was a painful period, you know, when you think you have so much to offer and yet you just can't earn a living. And that's how mainly your people are judged. So, um, but, uh, you know, and I, I just finally just, so um, I had a friend uh, who a very fascinating um, Pakistani performance artist named Veena Sharif. And she invited me to see her do her, her act down way down the Lower East Side of Manhattan. That was kind of scary back then. It was an area called Alphabet City because the, the, the avenues are all named just the Avenue A, Avenue B, Avenue C. It's way on the far side of the island, Manhattan Island. And in those days, it, it, it was pretty dicey. And um, anyway, Ken and I went to see Bina do her act. And, and she was at, in this playing in this little um, storefront art gallery bar um, called Limbo Lounge. And Bina's show was, oh, she was fabulous. And um, I was so entranced by this raffish place, this tiny, tiny little narrow storefront place that seemed like kind of that of Berlin in the 20s. Um, and I immediately, that, you know, as, as soon as her show came down, I, I found a young man who, who owned the venue and, you know, I said, I would just love to perform here. And he, it was so loose. He just looked on his calendar and said, I'll give you these two dates, you know, Friday and Saturday, uh, you know, a month from now, I thought I'll take it. Well, well, basically what happened was we were doing these shows at the limbo lounge and then chick and they start, we got this following so fast, so quickly, really in a matter of months. Um, and then it's, and particularly when we did vamp, we would bring back vampire lesbians because we did a whole number of different places. Particularly vampire lesbians, the response was so big. And we, we Ken and I were kind of like, really? We didn't think it was that good. <laughs> but, you know, I, my solo material was much more com complicated and, and, you know, personal. But that piece, somehow people just got into it. And Ken said, well, maybe this is, you know, the commercial break that has eluded us for a decade. And, and we tried to get producers down there to transfer it to real theater and they wouldn't touch it. And then finally Ken said, we should just produce it ourselves. And he worked out a budget of, um, you know, it seemed like an enormous amount of money, $55,000. And um, we, we raised it really fairly quickly when, when you actually think about it within six months, maybe. And um, everybody pitched in, everybody's family, you know, friends, you know. Yeah, I mean, everyone pitched in. We got it together and we were able to, and then we um, we got a hold of the Provincetown Playhouse on McDougal Street here in the village. And it was a historic theater that Eugene O'Neill had founded in the 20s, but had fallen on hard times. And it was known as a jinxed house. Nothing ever ran there. So we got a very cheap rent because the landlord thought we'd probably only be there a weekend. And we only had raised enough money to open. We had no, nothing in reserve. Uh, but then that opening night came and we got this incredible rave review in the New York Times. And we, we you know, it, it just was that I'll never forget it. 
ever. I get emotional just reliving it. Just I'm sure. Reliving. Well, yeah, because we just didn't. We were so terrified because we would have closed the next day. Had you know, and I don't know what would have. I just don't know. I don't like to even think what would have happened. Oh, you can't. How long yeah. did you uh, run there at uh, the province? Five right years. <laughs> Five years. It's one of the longest. Oh. Running, it's one of the longest running. I could even. One could say uh, I, I, that it's the longest running. Um, straight play, non, non-musical in off-Broadway history. I, I think, I believe, I mean, it, it, you could debate this one or that one, but I, I, I'm going to say, I mean, it ran like, <laughs> well, I don't know, like seven, 1,700 performances. It was nuts, but we, we were in it. We stayed in it uh, for the original cast uh, two years, about two years. And then we, we, we were getting kind of bored, you know, and um, we weren't used to that kind of long run. And it was a hard play to, to sustain because there was like no play there. It was just kind of these stiff sketches. But uh, we started, we went back to the Limbo Lounge to do um, um, a play called Gidget Goes Psychotic. All right. We've got plenty more to talk about. And we will, when we take after, right after this break, we'll be right yeah. back. Thanks for listening to this interview. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that we stream live on YouTube every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out the hundreds of past interviews and all the comedy sketches from our past shows. And remember to subscribe to us on YouTube so you don't miss a single new episode of Amazing Guests and Comedy. You can find us at youtube.com slash amberlive. All right, we have more to talk about with Charles Bush. We just finished the Vampire Lesbians of Sodom saga, and now we're going on to what comes next. All right, Charles, come back in, please. Okay, so you started mentioning um, the, the origins of Psycho Beach Party, but there was another name that you, you t- called it. Oh, uh, well, the thing was, um, yeah, we, we were in this long run, in our, our little troupe, and, and we were very young, and we, we just, it was hard sustaining the you know the energy of doing the show eight times a week month after month and so we um we thought it'd be fun you know when you're young you got endless energy to to do late shows at the limbo lounge in east village so we would do our you know saturday friday and saturday night show at eight o'clock full play and then we'd you know keep our wig caps on and and get into jump into taxis, go across town, and our audience would be waiting already, you know, in their seats. And we come down the aisles, you know, and, <laughs> and get, get throw in our costumes and and do uh, it was called Gidjiko Psychotic. And it was um, based on it was a spoof of um, beach party movies and the TV show Gidget. Uh, and that was that got a great response, you know, in some ways better than than vampire lesbians. And um, and again I guess Ken thought, well, maybe we should transfer that as well, you know. And and I'd done a, um, a big rewrite on the play, and I started thinking that it was actually had a little more to it than just being a spoof of of Gidget. And and we uh, came up with the title Psycho Beach Party, and and that's what we opened when we transferred it off Broadway. And and it was really cool because we moved we opened at the Players Theater, which was on the same block as the Provincetown Playhouse. 
And so I had two, for one year, I had two shows running on the same street. I mean, that's like, it was so, it really was an amazing feeling. It was so cool. Yeah. And so we, we replaced everybody, all of our original troupe. We, we went over to the Players Theater and then we, um, uh, and I, my great discovery was to replace me in Vampire Lesbians was a very young man named David Drake. And he, uh, we had, we had all these auditions and we didn't know, we'd never replaced me in a play. So we didn't know, we weren't even sure what we were looking for. And then one day we had auditions and, and in walked David Drake. We knew this kid. He, he was a friend of our publicist and he'd seen the show, you know, like a hundred times. And, and I, I thought, Oh brother, I said, it's it come down to this, you know, that the kid, you know, you know, Pete Sanders, for, you know, kid, you know, friends good, were auditioning him. And well, he'd seen he'd seen the show so many times that he could totally imitate my performance. And we were and we were all laughing so hard. And we couldn't tell if we were laughing because he was good or because that he had actually picked up at every strange little choice that that had calcified over the years in my performance. And, he, and we kind of, we bear a real resemblance, actually. Our bone structures are similar. And, uh, so we thought, well, what if, you know, I actually coached him on all the choices I was making so he would understand what was behind the the choice. And so we kept, gave him the part. And then he, uh, and we did that. I, I worked with it very closely with him and, and he did it very well. And then eventually he played longer than I did. Oh, he did thousands of performances. Oh, he was, he did it for like two years, off and on, and and then kind of found his own performance, and he was marvelous. We owe him a lot. No, Psycho Beach Party though ran about a year, yeah, about a year, yeah. and um, and then it was it was ma- made into a movie, but not for a long time. My uh, I had a wonderful manager who just passed away about a year ago, Jeff Mill, and he. Um, he kept thinking it was, that Psycho Beach Party should be a movie, and I, I didn't really see it. I, I thought it was so rooted in the theater, but he kept pursuing it, and it took about eight years. I, I kind of didn't even think about it, but um, finally it all worked out that he, Jeff began representing a young film director, um, Bob King, and Bob King had an association with Strand Releasing um, the Production company and they wanted to make a movie with them and so jeff melnick thought well then you should make a movie of charles's play and it all worked out after eight years and uh and it became a movie that has kind of like a cult following yeah yes we have a clip of that uh, russell let's oh, see yeah. it i guess we are the only ones watching the movie these guys have only one thing on their minds want a wiener there are some fries, tomatoes in that tin can. I can feel it in my nuts. You and your nuts. You kids think you own this beach. Think it's a teenage world. Well, you're dead wrong. Let me help you with that. Have I been acting strange lately? Who do you have to to get a hot dog in this dump? What? Surfer chick with a split personality. Uh, should I unpack my bongos? 
I intend to unpack mine. <laughs> All right, guys, come on. That's, that's enough. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> Help me. I hate to say this, but I think our little chipper may be the butcher at Malibu Beach. <laughs> Strange that the victim had only one testicle stuffed in his mouth. Well, that's because he only had one. Plenty of meat. Only one potato. A little sex. I believe this is what you young people call it. A gangbang. A little sin. I've got a bad boy. Bad boys get spanked. A little psycho. Party till you drop. Dead. I hope you put some bacteria on that scratch. Psycho Beach Party. That's the most exciting story idea I've heard in years. Wow. <laughs> That's a really good trailer. <laughs> How much involvement did you have in the movie? Obviously, you were in it, but uh, did you have any creative consultants? Or uh, well, you I mean, I, I wrote it. I mean, I wrote the adaptation, although I worked very closely with the director. I'd, I had I'd never, you know, written a screenplay before, and Bob King uh, was was very good. And um, yeah, so he, he um, it was really his his idea. The the stage play had very little plot and um uh he bob had the idea that it should also be an homage to um uh, 70s slasher movies which i wasn't really familiar with so that gave the whole you know thriller plot to it which was which was quite successful and then they they wanted me in the movie but it it, it wasn't going to be that stylized where i could at, at 40 be playing the you know, young girl. So um, I, I had to think, oh, who would I play? I could be the mother. I didn't really want to do that. And then I thought, well, if it's a, if there's, if it's a thriller, then there should be a detective. And I could, I thought, oh, I'll be like the Susan Hayward uh, sort of police detective. And so I wrote that part in, and that, that was a lot of fun. But I, 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 other than that, though, I, I really wasn't around that much. It really was Bob's movie. But it wasn't your last movie that you've made because uh, Die, Mommy, Die. Tell me about Die, Mommy, Die. Oh, that's really, I'm very proud of that. What a, oh, what a dream come true. Uh, while we were, because there's the, the two movies are sort of um, related in that um, I guess I was going to go to L.A. to to make Psycho Beach Party, the movie. And Ken Elliott was living in L.A. with the idea that maybe he was thinking about trying to get into TV directing. And so he said he was living in L.A. And he, he said, well, since you're going to be out here, what if we also did a play? <laughs> well, that's kind of nutty. But I said, well, you know, I, thought, I knew that Bob King kind of wanted me out of his hair. And um, and that I'd only be shooting for ten days, so I thought, well, why not? So I, I had to write something very quickly, and uh, and and my, I had become very close with a young man named Carl Andrus, who's been my collaborator now for about twenty five years. But I, I was Carl was fairly new to my life, and I knew that I wanted him to come out to L.A. and and 
be part of this experience. So we were trying to come up with a, of a story, and Carl said, well, maybe if we thought of, um, you know, some classic or a, a fable or, a, you know, that we could sort of base the story on. And then, we, you know, I, I thought of Clytemnestra and the House of Atreus, and and I thought, oh, well, that would be kind of an interesting story, but make it like a Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, 60s um, suspense movie. We have the trailer of Die, Mommy, Die, so let's watch okay. that. Angela Arden. You've heard the rumors, you've read the gossip, but now for the first time, the real story can be told. Your mother is a sorceress. She's a witch. Nothing but trash washed over the Canadian border. Prepare yourself for a shocking tale of blinding ambition, forbidden love, and murder. Kill mother. <laughs> All captured in color and told against the backdrop of sensational Hollywood. And introducing a new star in young Mr. Jason Priestley. You and I made some heavy promises, baby! Get out! Yes, Angela Arden's back, and she's ready for her close-up. This time, it's for me, for me, for me! That's a great trailer. That was a great show. You, you didn't have any fun doing that, did you? <laughs> no, I just loved. I just loved every second. I, I just it oh, was a dream come the, true. I had such a dream come true. I just couldn't couldn't believe my great fortune. Every day is like, oh, oh what do I? What fabulous thing do I do today? It, just, oh my God, the costumes, the hmm. sets, the oh, oh everything, the wigs, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it really was so much fun to be with, and oh, I just you know, really I. It, it was just heaven. Yeah. One of the great experiences of my life. You know, and it's so sad that Mark Rucker uh, died young. It's his only film. And um, yeah, it's, but you know, I have good news actually, because it's, you know, it, it, um, it's been a bit of a lost film. It was never, it's never been released for streaming. And, and I think you, the only way you can buy it is finding, you know, just the occasional copy on eBay or something, you know, it's, it's, um, but, uh, Wolf Distribution is going to um, restore it, and it's going to be uh, available for all of that, you know, shortly. So I'm th I'm thrilled because it really was it was it was so painful for me to think that, you know, something that I'm so proud of uh, could just be you know kind of lost. All right, very good. All right, Charles, we've talked about that, and we've got more to talk with you later on, but right now we're going to take a little break. What a show, our 97th show of Amber Live. Thank you so much for putting up with us all these weeks, and we have a lot more planned in the future, some special ideas coming up, and uh, we figure, why not? So we're going to be back next week with more of Charles Bush and many weeks after that. Until then, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single episode. And remember that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast. You can use our Venmo at RJD Pro, or you can visit us at AmberLive.tv and look for the Support Amber Live button.
live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber with two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion, secret sewer glasses, you can't look away. Ask her, does she do it? There's really nothing to it. She's got that fun on it, yay! If you have a party, or if you're feeling naughty, call up the house of the maid. Here comes your favorite gal. Bye. 